Historically, palm branches were used in Rome, in Greece, in the ancient Middle East. They were used as emblems of victory, emblems of triumph. When a conquering king would come into a city, he would enter in and the people from that city would go out to him and bring palm branches and have a celebration uh, parade into the city. That was called a parousia. So when a king would come in or a visiting dignitary, someone of very great importance, the people would come out to meet him with palm branches signifying victory, the conqueror, we're triumphant, and they would go out to meet him and wave the branches as they came into the city. That's what they were doing on the day that Jesus came to Jerusalem. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, God told Israel in chapter 23, verse 40, uh, during the Feast of Booths, to take your palm branches and take the willow tree branches and to rejoice in the Lord for seven days, waving them before him. Solomon knew how important palm branches were. He recognized that they were symbols of uh, great magnitude and victory and majestic. In fact, he decorated his temple, the temple of the Lord, with palm branches. 1 Kings 6, 29 says, On the walls all around the temple... In the inner and outer courts were carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. So what we're celebrating is the victory of God. That's what this means, victory. It means rejoice. It means to celebrate. And that's what they were doing on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Jesus had visited Jerusalem a few times during his three years of ministry, but even in the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't even indicate that Jesus went to Jerusalem. Only John does. The other Gospel writers say that Jesus didn't enter into Jerusalem till the last week of his life. We know he did, according to the Gospel of John, but it was not of any significance. During his three-year ministry, Jesus ministered in Galilee. He ministered to the Galilean Jews. He performed miracles there. He multiplied bread. He laid hands on the sick. They were recovered. They were healed. He cast out demons. He did all this work among the Galilean Jews. So in the last week when Jesus is going to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he is going into Jerusalem as the Son of God, fully manifest now, after the Mount of Transfiguration and after raising Lazarus from the dead, he fully declared his glory. He's entering into Jerusalem to judge the temple as the Son of God. And as he's approaching that mountain, it's the Galilean Jews who saw in wonder of his amazing miracles, identifying him as the Messiah. It's that group of Jewish believers that came and waved their palm branches, knowing this is the king, this is Messiah. Because it's hard, you know, it's confusing that a week later, is it the same crowd that would say, crucify him? Well, that was the Jerusalem Jews who didn't fully understand his ministry or see what he had done. The Galilean Jews had, his disciples. It says, the next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They believed that. That's what they were excited about. So to understand what these words mean, Hosanna is a, a word in Hebrew that means save now. 
So when we say Hosanna in the highest, we're saying, save us now by the highest authority. And they're saying this to Jesus. Deliver us. Save us right now. Save us. You're the deliverer. You're the savior. Save us. They thought it was from military occupation of Rome. They had no idea what God was saving them from. The power of sin and death. So much greater than they could even understand or comprehend. So Hosanna, save us now. And then they quote Psalm 118, the Hillel. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is Yahweh's deliverer, Yahweh's savior. He's coming. What a victory. What a time. And then they even dare to say this. He's even the king of Israel. Ooh-wee. That made the Pharisees mad. In the book of Luke, they said the Pharisees were so mad, they said, tell your disciples to shut up. And Jesus said, if I even tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out. For this moment, this time, has such significance in human history, in the history of creation and the earth and the cosmos. It is at this point that the Son of God is coming into the temple and Mount Zion to give his sacrifice to the Father. Not everybody could comprehend it. But the timing is so significant. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew this prophecy. That's why the night before, Jesus told his disciples, Go into the city and bring me a colt that has never been ridden on. And if they ask, tell them, the Lord, Yahweh, has need of it. And so they bring the colt out. Jesus rides in on that donkey according to Zechariah 9.9. Prophecy is being fulfilled before their very eyes. And they're part of it. They're part of the significance of God's move in the earth. How many of you want to be a part of God's move in the earth? How many of you want to have such an such a prophetic moment in your life that you are actually part of what Scripture prophesied. And you are, as the body of Christ, daily as you're bringing salvation to people's lives, as you're sharing the gospel, you are entering into the divine prophetic plan of God. God called you and is using you now for that purpose, to bring a triumphal entry of Christ into somebody's life. That's awesome. And so Zechariah 9.9 was being uh, fulfilled even at that moment. Even beyond that was the prophecy of Daniel that literally according to the day and the hour, Jesus is marching into Jerusalem according to the prophecy of Daniel. Now I don't think the people there had their calculators out and were figuring out the times, but according to Daniel 9.24 it says, 70 weeks are declared or decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish, listen to this, this is what God wants to do. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. That's what God was going to accomplish. Then he gives the timetable in which he's going to do these things. And he calls it the week of 70, 70 times 7. 
Prophetically, a week equals a year in prophecy. So 70 times 70, 70 years times 7. And so he goes on and he says this, Know therefore and understand that from the beginning, the going out of the word to restore, to rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there stands seven weeks. So seven times seven is 49. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. This is the reference to Israel being captive in Babylon. God says, I'm going to release you after seven years, 49 years after the decree for Silas to let them go back and rebuild the temple to the date Israel leaves after the decree of Silas, goes back, and after 49 years, they finish building the temple. From that point, 434 years later, 62 times 7, will come the anointed one but he will be cut off. That is the exact day that Jesus is entering into the city of Zion, Jerusalem. So no wonder the rocks themselves would cry out. This was the destiny set before the beginning of the foundations of the earth that God would fulfill, putting an end to transgression and sin, and the Holy One would be cut off. No one fully comprehended that Jesus would give his life and he would be put to death. But how many of you know what happens after three days? He rises from the dead and puts an end to transgression. And he brings a new temple. That new temple is the church, the ecclesia, the people of God. Now the temple of God isn't on one hill. Now the temple of God is on every street corner in every nation and in every land. You represent the presence of God and you bring this victory and this triumph to everyone who will hear it. That's the importance of this time. Not only that is the place, the significance of this place, the rocks would cry out. They're rumbling already by the presence of the Son of God. Because they're going to Mount Zion. Jesus is riding to Mount Zion. Zion is the place where David purchased from the threshing floor a place for him to offer sacrifice. It would become the city in which David would bring the Ark of the Covenant and build the tabernacle of David upon. Later, his son Solomon would build upon that same threshing floor. That's Mount Zion. That's the place God established for his temple to reside. That's where Jesus is entering into. David said, I need to repent, for he had numbered the people and God was angry with them. And he needed to repent, so he wanted to offer sacrifice. He went to the threshing floor, and the man said, oh, king, you can just have it for free. And he said, you know what? I don't want anything. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You know, our sin costs us. Sin costs us. And God needs to have us repent and God will pay for it. And that was the beginning of Mount Zion, the temple where God would reside. Well, it wasn't the beginning because in matter of fact, that same mountain, Mount Zion, where that threshing floor was, is called Mount Moriah. In fact, it's the same location where Abraham sacrificed or was willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It was in that same location on Mount Zion. In fact, 
we have Muslims and Jews fighting over that Temple Mount because both of them have the same father, Abraham. And it is on that mountain that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son. It costs. And as he was ready to sacrifice Isaac, God stayed his hand and said, I will offer myself a lamb to atone. It was on that same mountain. So it's on the Mount Zion that David had established for the worship of God. It's on the same mountain that Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son. That Jesus is walking on that mountain, ready to go there. And on the outside, on that same mountain, on the outside of the city of Jerusalem, is a part of the mountain called Golgotha. That word Golgotha in Hebrew means the place of the skull. But why would they call it the skull? Some say, well, it's because it looks like a skull. But to the Jews of that day and to tradition of the Jews, the reason it's called Golgotha, the hill of the skull, is because there is a very certain skull buried in that mountain. For it's decreed in Hebrew tradition that Noah brought the skull of Adam on the ark and he gave it to his son Shem, who buried it on Mount Moriah in Salem. And there was a king that watched over that sacred ground. His name was Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or Shalom, the city of peace, Jerusalem. So this mountain is the mountain in which Adam's skull was buried, and they called it the hill of the skull, for it was Adam's skull that Melchizedek watched over as Noah brought it. It was the same mountain that Abraham was ready to kill his son Isaac in worship to God, and God said, no, I'll prepare myself a lamb. It's the place where David was willing to sacrifice and build the tabernacle of David and the temple unto God that Solomon brought, and Jesus is about to walk up into that temple Temple Mount and give his life on a cross above the very skull of Adam. The last Adam is giving his life's blood to redeem all who are in Adam. That is our victory. That's why we wave a palm branch. Who could do this? Who could bring such victory to all mankind and birth a new temple, the temple of God, the temple of God's people, the church. So what I say to you this morning, Hosanna, save now in the highest, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. He's my king. He's your king. He's our king. And we need to let the world know it. Amen. We have to tell this world. But you got to hold on to this victory. you got to hold on to this victory. Because victories come in the Lord. How many of you know that? And then something comes right after it. Trouble. I mean, come on, Adam. Think about Adam. They sin, they fall. God so graciously brings some leaves and covers them up. 
and atones for their sin and cleanses and gives them a promise of victory. The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. Yes, hold on to your victory. And they have a child, and they name him Cain. And they have another child, and name him Abel. And they hold on to their victory, and Cain kills the brother. We've got victories, but how many of you have had the enemy try and kill them? Try and rob them. Try and steal them from you. Adam and Eve continued on in life and they saw sin increase and increase and increase to such a place where God has to destroy the world, but he brings a victory through Noah and the dove returns with a branch in his mouth. It's a new world. It's a new chance. Hold on to your victory. And Noah looks to the rainbow of God's promise and says, yes, we've got a new world. We've got a new victory only to be abused by his son and Canaan be cursed and sin continues in the land. Unto the time of Abraham when God calls him out and said, Abraham, I will bless you and bless all who bless you and this, your seed will bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham is excited, praise God, I've got a victory. He's got a palm branch, he's going to hold on. Has Isaac, has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and they all end up in slavery in Egypt. Again, where's the victory? 400 years in slavery, as a nation, we're not even past 250 yet. Imagine 400 years, slaves. Where's the victory? You have to hold on. And they held on to the hope till Moses came and brought them through the waters. And as they escaped the army, they took palm branches and they waved victory. We're free. We've got our own promised land. Yahoo! Till no one wanted to get go into it. Well, that generation's got to go. They finally enter in only to fail and fall to other idols and other gods. But you've got to hold on to your victory. David held on. David had victory. David had a heart after God, purchased that mountain, and then God established his presence in Mount Zion. He united both tribes together. It was the golden era of Israel, and God was in their midst, and they had victory, and they celebrated it till his son Solomon came and then followed after idols. And Israel went into disrepair and eventually was cast into Babylon till God would bring them out. I didn't mean to bring you down. I'm just giving you history. <laughs> All I'm saying is God gives us victories. But it seems like they fade quick. I mean, the Savior came. Jesus came. Messiah's here. He's the King of Israel. He walks on the scene. He judges the temple, turns over the money changers, begins to preach, begins to declare who he is. And they basically decide to kill him. And they kill him within a week. But it was God's plan and God's purpose to bring a victory greater than anyone could see. I'm telling you that God gives you a victory and many times it has dimensions you cannot see nor can you comprehend. It looks like it failed. It looks like it's been buried and dead, but it will rise again because what God plants in a promise, he will fulfill. And it is the same for you. 
and the early church remembers it, and the early church rejoiced in it and celebrated, and the early church exploded with dynamite and fire from heaven, reaching the then-known world, turning it upside down with his power and his anointing, until Diocletian came and began killing and martyring every Christian he could find. Then Nero came along and he began to use Christians as lights in his sporting arena. He would put them on poles and light them on fire to light his night entertainment. He would put Christians in the Colosseum and have wild animals and beasts ravage and tear their bodies apart. Where's the victory? Oh, it's still there. It's still there. In fact, in the catacombs of Rome where many Christians hid and where they buried the bodies of those who were martyred and killed on their tombstones and on the walls, you'll find one emblem over their graves. Palm branches. Palm branches. Why? The victory. The victory is ours. The victory of God. Though there may be trouble, though there may be problems, the victory of God will still persevere. In fact, we are all going to see it, for in the book of Revelation it says this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with what? Palm branches in their hands. We will wave these palm branches again. We will have the ultimate victory. We will all stand together. And you'll be able to look and you'll see Adam there. And you'll see Noah there. And you'll see Abraham there. And you'll see King David there. And we will all stand before Jesus and the promises he made finally fully revealed in victory. So hold on to your victory. Hold on to your victories. You've been saved. You've been delivered. You have victory in Christ Jesus. So hold on. No matter what the enemy throws at you, no matter what you're going through in your life, though your body fail, though your mind is weak, though troubles are many, hold on to your victory. Because God is going to bring fruit to what he's birthed in you. Amen?